Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Thank you for that, Bishop. This evening, I first and foremost give honor to God who brought this change in me. Lately, I've been thanking him almost every single day for that change. Because I look back and just, it's been a radical change. I also give honor to our pastor, to Brother Jerry Mason, and the bishop. All right, let me tell you all, putting sermons together is exhausting. (laughs) I've never been so tired. And people at work have been saying, like, man, you look tired. Because there's a lot of work that goes into this, a lot of studying, a lot of making sure everything lines up correctly. It's, I greatly, greatly appreciate the work all of you do. And I'm thankful for how they've invested in me over the years. And I'll publicly say to Brother Mason what I told him before, face to face, Because of Sunday school and because of Friday night youths, you are a big reason why I can stand here today. And I thank you for that. But tonight, I'd like us to go to Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that they that would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he might testify unto them, lest they also come into the place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, But if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Thank you all for standing for the reading of the word. You may be seated. My title tonight is Fire and Torment. 
Last Sunday evening, Pastor came and asked if I'd be willing to minister this evening. Right away, though I did think about it, I knew what I was going to minister on. Because some days before, actually for a couple weeks before even, I'd been thinking about a backslidden friend of mine. I value his friendship uh, very greatly. Uh, and he and I can still have conversations about church, God, the Bible, the whole thing. He knows it very well. Uh, he even lived it for most of his life until recent years. He just doesn't want to live it right now. But I've been, I was thinking about it. And I was thinking, man, you know, you know what will happen if you die right now. Like, don't, doesn't it click? Don't you realize where you're going? But when I was thinking about all this, it made me realize hell is a topic many Christians don't like to think or talk about. But it is still a very real place where many souls will go. Many souls, because wide is the gate. It's really, really easy to get to hell. The thing is, you don't have to do anything to get there. And people don't like to do anything. And I know we, by nature, as human beings, we're pretty sinful and selfish. But even so, we generally hope for the best for others. And we don't really think most people could go to hell unless they're like Hitler or someone. Tonight, though, I want to tread very carefully, but also boldly, on this topic of hell. I want to reawaken the urgency in our spirits to reach the lost souls around us every day. Because most that we see on the right, on the left, they'll walk into that fire. And we are the only light they have. But I also want to make sure we remember what could be waiting for us and why it is so vital to keep growing and holding on. I want to start, though, by taking a glance at what hell is. Most people I come across kind of think about a place where they're going to go with their friends and just party. Like, yeah, there's going to be a fire, but I'll just grab a six-pack and we'll have a good time forever, apparently. But it's not that simple. Hell is a place of eternal fire and torment without rest. Some descriptions we find in the Bible include outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, the lake of fire. Imagine that, so much fire, it's like a lake. Like it's so concentrated, there are no bare spots. The second death, an unquenchable fire. But beyond such descriptions like this, the Bible doesn't give a lot of details about what hell will be like. And really, I don't think it has to because the Bible's not trying to take you to hell. It's trying to get you to heaven. But we can still learn a lot by taking a closer look at what these descriptions are. Eternal fire. For your reference, you can go to Mark 9 and 44, and you'll see it mentioned there. But eternity is a state where time has absolutely no application. Take away all your clocks because it's not going to end. The fire of hell is a flame that will not wane. It will not let up. It will not die. This is a fire that is meant to burn 
forever. The true torment of this eternal fire is that it will always burn you, but it will never burn you away. You've already died. And as an eternal soul, you cannot be destroyed. Not utterly, anyway. Outer darkness, which is mentioned in Matthew 8 and 12 for a reference. We can look at outer, just the word itself, as easily meaning outside the kingdom or presence of God. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So outer darkness completely sums up being outside in every way, shape, and form of God. In my opinion, when I was thinking about it, this will be the worst part of hell for any born-again Christian who has backslid. They will be in outer darkness, completely and totally cut off from the love and light of God that they once knew so intimately. They knew what it was like to be at an altar and feel his presence or to be in a prayer closet at home or to even be a witness to others. They knew him well. What they're going to have now, there, will be the eternal regret of knowing that they threw all that away. They wasted the whole chance that was called life and went there. A place of weeping and gnashing of teeth found in Luke 13 and 28 for a reference. You will weep because there are no more second chances. There's no more grace. There's no chance you will ever escape or get away from this. You will weep because you will look up to heaven and you will see all that you missed out on because the choices you made in this life. You will gnash your teeth or bite down in pain and anguish. Imagine, just a little imagination if you will, that the pain you feel is so bad You can't even cry out verbally. Nothing but silence comes out, just a silent scream. All you can really do is bite down on your teeth, just as hard as you can. And even that's going to hurt because you're biting down so hard. Just total agony. And really, I'd imagine you'd bite down, mostly because your vocal cords are constantly being burnt to a crisp. So you're reduced to just a silent scream and gnashing. The second death, which you can find in Revelation 2 and 11 for your reference. We all die once. It's a natural part of life. We're born, we live, and at some point, our bodies die. That would be, logically, the first death. The second death doesn't mean you're coming back to life to die again. The second death is your soul being cast from the presence of God, who is the life and light of men. When you're outside of life, you're stuck in death. You are suddenly an eternal soul trapped forever in the clutches of death, who first was able to claim your body and is now forever has your soul. Now, outside of these descriptions, I wanted to use some imagination. Just bear with me. 
There's fire and there's torment. Lots of it. But there's also no rest. Here, in this life, no matter what we're facing, depression, anxiety, a lot of people in America have that right now, a bad day, week, month, year, job loss, losing someone we love, at the very least, we can escape the horror of reality for a few hours through sleep. It's not like that in hell. You won't get a break. Your torments will continue. That anxiety, that depression, like everything, there's no rest, not for a second, not for a moment. There's no safe corner in hell. Now imagine any time you've ever felt fear, whether you just wake up randomly being afraid and it almost feels like a heart attack. Anytime you've been depressed and it weighs on you. Anytime you felt incredible physical or emotional pain. Anytime you felt regret so strong it almost physically hurt. Imagine anything that causes discomfort, anything you don't like, any of the pains you face in life. Now imagine that in hell, that's all you get. All of it. All at once. The very worst. And so much worse than anything we've ever faced up here. There's no rest. There's no end. There's no letting up. Just as the love and joy we can experience in life is only a drop in the ocean compared to all that we're going to experience in heaven, even so is all the worst experiences in life compared to what will be felt for eternity in hell. Everything we experience in life is nothing to what will be experienced in eternity, for better or for worse. But moving on from what hell is, because it's not a pretty picture, I find a lot of people ask, why do people, even good people, go to hell? It's a valid question. A simple answer is this. People choose to go. And I don't mean they purposely want to go to hell. You know, give, give me a ticket. I'm on my way. It's the choices we have made in this lifetime that determine where we spend our eternity. And most people's choices lead them away from God. It's just easier. But I want to answer this a little more closely, a little better. And these are not my words. This is a, a Q&A I found online that I feel answers it very well. The key to understanding good people in hell, or anyone for that matter, revolves around the book of life and the books of works. The book of life contains the names of everyone who has ever been born. Those who die without a savior have their names blotted out of the book of life and will be evaluated by their behaviors which are recorded in the books of works. I imagine that those awaiting their turns with Jesus to be organized, to be organizing their speeches to show them why they are good enough for heaven. God will then show them the book of works, why they are not good enough. Then Jesus will open the book of life and discover, as he already knows, that their names are not there. Can you imagine that? Kind of standing aside, seeing the book, trying to think why you're good enough to go to heaven. You're peeking, and you don't see your name. That's what, like, I thought I was good enough. 
tragically, they will be tossed into the lake of fire and assigned to hell for eternity. The real problem is that no one is good enough for God's heaven. If he were to let us into heaven with all our sin, we would wreck the place. We would pretty much make it like it is here, minus the, some of the beautiful parts we see. Our sin has made this world pretty messed up. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ and our surrender to him as Lord and Savior to receive his salvation, to clean our lives of sin and make us fit to live in heaven. Romans 3 and 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6 and 23, for the wages of sin is death, which means we've all sinned. We're all earning death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Romans 2, the Apostle Paul shares with us seven factors of judgment that Jesus will use when he opens the book of works at the great white throne judgment. From these books, Jesus will prove why good people are not fit for heaven. Romans 2 does not show folks how to be saved. This passage shows people why they are lost. These are not the principles of salvation. These are the principles of evaluation. Here are some of the reasons why good people are disqualified from entering into God's heaven. God will evaluate according to the truth as outlined in the Bible. The whole Bible, not just one verse. God will judge everything according to truth because we, are, we all are in the habit of comparing ourselves with others. On Judgment Day, God will say to those who died without Christ, let's judge you for who and what you really are. Way down here, he's judging who you truly are. God will also evaluate according to his kindness. God's judgment will be in proportion to the amount of kindness that he has poured out to people during their lifetimes. That could be a heavy judgment. Because imagine all the goodness, anything good you've ever experienced is his kindness in your life. God expends that kindness to us that he might lead us to repentance. Christians often wonder why lost people seem to have it so good. I mean, who hasn't? The answer is that it's just God's kindness to turn them to repentance. It's grace. It's another chance. The longer they reject his kindness, though, the more inexcusable they will be when they stand at the great white throne judgment. God will also evaluate according to his wrath. Yeah, we hear he's a God of mercy all the time, and he is. But he's also a God of judgment and wrath against sin. Hardening of the arteries can take us to an early grave. Our hardening of the heart spiritually will take us to the lake of fire. If the grace and kindness of God have not led us to repentance, then every day, moment by moment, hour by hour, we are storing up drops of the terrible treasure of God's wrath, which will break forth of the great white throne. God is allowing us to live, and he is holding back punishment. He is right now giving us kindness so that we might turn to him in repentance. Our judgment for eternity 
will be in direct proportion to the amount of kindness that God has given to us, which we ignored as coming from God. God will evaluate according to deeds. You may feel good or bad about hearing that initially. Standing before God now is the person who says, look, God, judge me according to my deeds. I've lived a good life. Take my good works and put them beside my bad ones. And certainly the good will outweigh the bad. I know a little bit of uh, Egyptian mythology. That's exactly how it happened. There were scales. You put your heart on one side and a feather of truth on the other side. If your heart outweighed the feather, I believe that's the right way of saying it, you were let into the good afterlife. If it wasn't, this little creature here ate your heart and you died again. That's not how it is with God. The problem with the moral man is that he thought that his good deeds will be weighed against his bad deeds or at the very least be compared against the deeds of others. That's not going to be how it happens. God will take the best works of the moral man or woman and compare them with Jesus' deeds. Jesus raises the lame. He gave sight to the blind. He healed the sick. He takes on the sin of the entire world and by his death and sacrifice brings salvation to those who commit to him as Savior. That's his deeds. We don't want to be compared to that. No one in their right mind wants to be judged on works, especially when those works are compared to the works that Jesus did. What we want is mercy. God is going to evaluate without playing favorites. God offers salvation to everyone because we all need it. God is not a respecter of persons. He shows no favoritism. Regarding the issue of sin, no one is better than anyone else from God's perspective. Always look at it like this. If you're in a city, you see all these different buildings of different heights. You know this one's taller, this one's shorter. You know, look how big this one is, look how little this one is. That's usually how we see sin. Like, ooh, look how much sin this is, how big this is, how little this is. But God is like the person looking down from an airplane. It all looks the same. That is God's perspective. There is no bigger or lesser sin. There's sin. God will judge. He who spared not his own son but delivered him, him up will certainly not hesitate to judge those who reject his free offer of grace in Jesus Christ. And it's not like he's just rubbing his hands together, can't wait to judge you. It's he's giving you chances in life, and he's warning that there is a judgment coming. God will evaluate us according to how well we've lived up to the light that we've received. There are two types of people. Those who have heard the gospel and received it, and those who have not. Both are judged according to how they respond to what they know. Those who have heard the gospel have seen the light. 
and by accepting it and living to it, are living up to the level of light they have received. But there are many people who hear the gospel and reject it. They are not living up to the light. And if they continue in that, they will stand condemned before God. Of course, this does beg the question, let's think of those in Africa who will never be exposed to or hear the gospel during their lifetimes. I know I've thought of that many times. Like, well, what about them? It really seems not fair to send them to hell because they never had a chance to hear the gospel. But Paul teaches that these folks are going to be judged according to how well they live up to what they know. And they do know more than we realize. They have an internal conscience which guides him as to what is right and wrong behavior. We all have the knowledge of sin, right and wrong. They can look at the stars at night and see the universe and know that there must be a God who created it all. And this was not a part of the article. This is my wording. God seeks those who seek him. So where I was really worried about them who might just die without ever hearing, like, first of all, we're all born knowing that there is a God. We can, there's proof all around us, undeniable. And if you seek after him, it's not like he's going to ignore you. He will get the gospel to you. God will evaluate according to the inner secrets of the heart. At the great white throne, God is going to open closet doors and reveal the secrets of everyone who's standing there. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 10 and 26. Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. Your skeletons are coming out of the closet. The deeds you buried a long time ago and even forgot about, they're coming back up. Those words you spoke that you really should not have, and I'm guilty, they're going to be brought back to light. Unsolved crimes are going to find their solutions. Every secret is going to be brought to light. But the way to avoid the judgment seat of Christ is to settle your case before it even comes to trial. Jesus said if you meet your adversary on the road, you'd better settle with him, lest he drag you into the court and have you paid to the uttermost penny. In this passage, the adversary is going to be God. He will be judge, jury, and prosecuting attorney. Christ died on the cross to offer us a chance to accept him, to find grace and salvation. Now, and settle our sin before judgment day comes. If we die without Christ, our case is going to come to trial, and God has enough evidence to condemn every person to hell. And he will. There is mercy now. There's settlement outside of court. But days of mercy are not without end. You're going to die someday. Tonight. You don't know. Rapture day is going to happen eventually. No one knows. Don't waste the time you have. Because when you die, your choice is sealed for eternity. Many people are going to hell. 
not because God created them just to go to hell, but because they did not seek the grace of God while they lived. They did not seek after him while they had the chance. But let's take a look at why God doesn't want people to go to hell. For one thing, hell was never designed for us. Hell was designed for Satan and the angels who followed him. In Isaiah 14, verses 13 through 15, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Satan, or Lucifer, was once the most beautiful and mighty of all the angels of heaven. And instead of allowing himself to be a reflection of the glory and beauty of God, that he was, he became full of pride and actually thought he could be God, thought he was worthy of being praised by the angels like God was. His pride blinded him into believing that the creation could be greater than the creator. But God immediately kicked Satan out of heaven. God beholds Satan as lightning from heaven. And Satan's destination became hell for eternity. Like, he is free to roam around right now on earth. The Bible says so. But his destination is hell. And even after realizing his power and beauty could never, ever compare to that of God, he never once had repentance of what he had done. He never felt sorry for it. I'm sure he's sorry he got caught. I'm sure he's sorry he's going to hell. But from what I can find through the word, And how he operates in the world today, he ain't sorry about what he actually did. And a third of the angels of heaven actually followed Satan. And they were also kicked out of heaven. And I don't think the Bible says this. But I think they followed Satan because he deceived them with his might and beauty. Somehow he was able to take the angels of God who were always in God's presence to take their eyes off of God and onto his own meager beauty, meager in comparison to God. It's like you going from gold to a mud pile. But that's why we need to be so vigilant and careful. If Satan can deceive even a third, 33%, of heaven and to believe in God isn't worthy, how much easier is it for him to deceive us? We're already prone to sin and reject God as it is. We've got to be careful about where we are standing and be conscious of choosing God over the desires of our flesh. God would not have designed us to have fellowship with him if he simply meant for us to go to hell anyway. God spoke all of creation into existence, except for us. God took the time to gather the dust of the earth 
inform us by hand. The Bible states that we were fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's because God himself fashioned and formed us. He made the effort to make us. God walked and talked with Adam and Eve every evening in the cool of the day. He doesn't physically walk with us today. But he does continue to communicate and walk with us through prayer and worship and attending church. We feel his presence every time we come into his presence because he makes it available. He designed all people to naturally know that there is a God worthy to be sought out and praised. Just Even just his creation points that there must be a designer. I love science. And the more I study it, the more I find everything pointing to a designer. There has to be. Anything else is the height of foolishness. We're all, we all know, all of creation points out that there is a God. But Satan, society, life usually distracts us from looking for him like we need to be. Ever notice how even atheists give credit to the universe for things? I see, I see it all the time. hear it all the time. Like, I, oh, the universe caused it to happen or even just for, for little things. It's because they can feel there's something more than what they can see. They just aren't looking in the right direction. God gave us his word to teach and to guide us. Guide us into heaven, not into hell. God commands in his word that we praise him. And also that we pray for ourselves and others. That he might intercede in our lives. Because he loves to move through our prayers. He doesn't have to have our prayers. But the prayer forms a relationship. It causes us to see his heart. Seeking out God. Obeying his word that he gives us. And I know you don't get all this overnight. Nobody runs a four-minute mile overnight. There's baby steps. There's take it as it comes. You learn something new. You apply it. You grow in it. You learn another new thing. You keep going. But all these things lead us to heaven, not to hell. God designed fellowship because he wants, to ha- wants us to have a taste, little taste of heaven now before we actually get it when he calls us home. If God wanted anyone to go to hell, he would not have bothered to sacrifice his own life on the cross. He would not have given us a way to come to know his grace. Every single person that ever existed was handcrafted by God. Jeremiah 1 and 5. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. This verse was to remind a man that God has a plan for him. Turns out, even the anointed sometimes wonder their value to God and have to be reminded. 
So you're not alone in feeling like you may not be worthwhile. Luke 12 and 7. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. This comes from a passage describing how God takes care of all his creation. He knows everything. He knows and cares for the sparrows, and he knows when they fall and die. He, I mean, he knows the details because he cares. He knows how much hair you have on your head right now. He pays attention to the details of our lives because he cares enough to do so. He could have just set everything in motion and stepped away, but he has his hand involved. That's a God wanting a relationship. That's a God wanting you to be with him, not a God wanting you to go to hell. And I don't see where these verses say, except for these people. This applies to everybody. You know, we're not some unpleasant stain on the cloth that is creation. We're not some unfortunate accident, some mistake, something God regrets or turns his nose at. We were made with intention and purpose for something more than just what you see or experience. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Because turning away from sin... Repentance means turning unto life, which is God. God does know that life and sin are very distracting. He's no fool. He lived a life on earth. He knows. He experienced. He knows what it's like. He didn't give in to the sin, but he felt those temptations just like we do. But he knows how distracting it can be. Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. How then shall they call on him him, in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Sin is always going to be around. As long as we live, there will be sin that we have to tangle with. But we who have heard the gospel, who have experienced that salvation that we find in his presence by following the word, Acts 2.38, following all the rest of the word after that, because it's not one stop and you're done. But we have the power to go out and share the gospel with those all around us. And when we witness through our words, through our lifestyle, which is the biggest witness. I have people from high school, back when I was getting more interested in God and growing and learning and not doing all that well, they have told me now that they saw my witness and thought I was a great Christian. It's how your light shines. But when that light shines, when we witness, we become the preacher. And we help save a soul from hell. We may not be this preacher up here. But like that preacher that ministers the gospel, we are out there ministering the gospel, out there witnessing, spreading the word of God, shining a light. 
And I'm coming to our close. Brother Mason, if you'll go ahead and come. Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word of my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die. And thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked ways, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because thou hast not given him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he hath done shall not be remembered, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the righteous man, that the righteous sin not, and he doth not sin, he shall surely live, because he is warned. Also thou hast delivered thy soul. If we go ahead and stand up and just gather around the altar and just get in a mindset of prayer. Go on, don't be shy. Come on up. You need to kneel at the altar, you need to stand, just get a place where you can pray. If people are, are going to go to hell, let it be over our dead bodies, with our hands still clutching at their feet. While we interact in life, our words, our actions, our stand for Christ should be a testament to them at every moment. In so much that even when we part ways, our memory is still a witness to their lives. Who knows if maybe someday in the future what we said and how we lived in front of them would be the inspiration they need to come to Christ and know the salvation he freely gives. Let's pray, church. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.